We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 to 22 this morning. So please open up your scriptures to that. As we continue to work our way through Matthew. I'm not a huge social media guy. I don't know if it's my age or I just don't have the attraction to that. I don't know. Maybe some of you here are. But social media is huge. Billions of people. It's amazing to say. Billions of people are on social media. The three biggest platforms in the world are Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And the name of the game in social media, from what I understand, is followers. That's it. That's what it's all about. Sure, you can go on and kind of explore and have fun and connect, but, but it, if, if, if you're really into social media, it's about followers. The more followers you have, the more influence you have. The more followers you have, the greater reach you have. The more followers, the more you can change minds. Simply put, the more followers, the better. That's it. The more followers, the better. Now, it doesn't matter who your followers are. That's not your concern, just that you have more followers. And sometimes you and I can, can kind of fall into this same kind of mindset when it comes to Jesus. The more followers, the better. Sounds right, right? Evangelistic outreaches can fall into this mindset and say, you know, it doesn't matter, but just sign that card or say that prayer. The more followers, the better. Churches can follow into this trap too, where membership is concerned. You know, they're not cleaning the membership roles, not keeping the people in the membership or the people that come to church. The membership roles tend to grow. You know, you have you have maybe 70 people coming to church, but you have 232 on the membership roles, and it makes it you feel bigger and better. More followers, the better. We can even import this into our worship service sometimes, this, this attitude. You know, taking anything that's offensive out of the worship service because, after all, the more people are here, the better. And this mindset can seep into our personal evangelism as well. Just get them to say the prayer. Just get them to say, yes, I follow Jesus. The more people that you get to say yes, the better. And then we come to texts like today. That all sounds so right, doesn't it? But we come to texts like these today that we're going to be looking at, and it seems that, that Jesus doesn't have that same priority. The more the better. It doesn't seem like that's what Jesus is after. Just more followers, just more followers. He seems to want something more than just indiscriminate followers. Let's look at a text this morning and see what Jesus is doing here. Starting in verse 18. We read, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, 
The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So, Jesus is at one of the heights of his ministry. He had several in his ministry. This is one of the heights of his ministry. He had just inspired many by the teaching on the mount, and then he comes down into, into the Galilee area, and he is, has this massive healing ministry. You know, we read at the end of, of, uh, of, of verse 16, 17, previous, that the people were thronging to him. They were bringing their, their sick and infirm to him, and he was healing them. And he was gaining a lot of notoriety, a lot of followers. And what does he do? What does he do with all those followers? He prepares to leave. says he prepares to go to the other side, to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. But before he gets into the boat, two people approach him. So the, the, the picture is he's, he's taken some his core disciples. He says, let's go to the other side. And before they leave, these two people approach him. Now, one of the patterns you begin to notice as you're reading through the Gospels in his ministry is when his popularity increases, when Jesus' popularity increases, he usually gives a hard teaching. Have you ever noticed that? When there's crowds around him, when everybody's going, yeah, Jesus, he gives hard words. It's very interesting. Tuck that away. Because we see that in Mark 8, when he feeds the, the 4,000 and it says massive crowds were around him, what does he teach on? What does he say? I'm going to die and be resurrected. Hard teaching. Think of that again in Luke 14 when it says great crowds were following him. And he turns to them and he says these words. If anyone wants to come to me and does not hate his father and his mother, and his wife, and his children, his brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And then, of course, there's, there's that amazing example of this in, in John 6, right? Where he feeds the 5,000. And huge crowds are with him at that point. And he stops. Do you remember what he says? One of the hardest teachings, actually. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have none of me. And you remember what it says there in verse 66? It says, On hearing this, many left him. So Jesus isn't into amassing a following. He wants committed disciples. He wants followers that are all in. He wants people who will ride out the spiritual storms of their life, clinging to the hem of his garment. In one of the ways he separates the followers from the disciples, disciples, if you will, the masses from those who are really committed to him, is by giving these hard teachings. That's what he does. He's separating the wheat from the chaff. People who value the benefits of Jesus, who are just there for the benefits, 
You know, I'm, I'm healing. I'm, I'm doing miracles. There are people that are just attracted to that, just the benefits of Jesus, from the people who really want a relationship with Jesus. It is to tell them, and what, one of the ways he does this is to tell them honestly, up front, what the life of a disciple looks like. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, he tells them the cost of discipleship. Okay, you want to follow me? You, you really want to follow me? This is what it's going to be like. And that's what we have right here. Two men approaching Jesus, and they want to be followers. They want to follow Jesus. And the first is a scribe, and we see him in verse 19 and 20. And he comes up to Jesus, and he says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, scribes were part of the intellectual elite, so to speak, of, of Jewish society. They drew up any legal documents that needed to be drawn up. But they also studied the doctrines of Scripture. These were the men who studied the doctrines so that they could apply it to the daily life of the Jewish people. And they also had the high privilege of when a new copy was needed, when the old copy of the Torah was, was to a point where it couldn't be used anymore, they were the ones who wrote a new copy of what they called the Bible, the Old Testament. So they knew their scriptures inside and out. Now sadly, the scribes were also, these were the people that were typically against Jesus. And that makes this scribe kind of unusual. The scribe is coming up to Jesus and saying, I want to follow you. Because they, they were part of the cabal that, that kind of wanted to, to kill Jesus, as we see as the Gospels go on. They were constantly trying to trap him in his words, right? Giving him these, these naughty type of, uh, of, of conundrums. Remember that in, in John chapter 8 with the woman caught in adultery? The, the scribes were there and they threw the woman caught in adultery before Jesus and said, yeah, listen, Moses' law says that we should stone her. What do you say? They knew what they were doing. They were just trying to trap Jesus. If Jesus said, stone her, he'd be in trouble with the Romans because the Jews didn't have, have the privilege of, or, or, or the legal uh, way of doing capital punishment anymore. But if they said, don't stone, you're in trouble with the Jews because the Mosaic Law says stone. So what's he to do? So they were trying to trap Jesus. The scribes saw Jesus as a threat, and so they were always trying to get rid of him. But here we have a scribe saying something that we would all love to hear, right? Have you ever, in your life, maybe a spiritual show of hands here, you don't have to put your hand up, have you ever in your life had somebody come up to you and say, I want to become a Christian. How do I become a Christian? I want to follow Jesus. Imagine if, if a person did that. How would you feel? I mean, elated, right? This is the opportunity of a lifetime. We dream of things like that. We'd be doing flips and twists inside, wouldn't we? A person wants to be a follower. But look at what Jesus says to him in verse 20. Foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Kind of an interesting challenge, isn't it? He kind of challenges this person. Here I want to follow Jesus. Imagine if we did that. We challenged the person out of the gate. He's explaining how difficult the life of a disciple really is. Now, I don't think that this is prescriptive in what we should be doing, brothers and sisters. I don't think it's prescriptive. 
But I do think there's a light application for us here today. I think this should be an ingredient, challenge, and in, in telling people the cost of discipleship, of what they want, or what they're asking for, or what they're hearing, should be an ingredient in our gospel conversations. We need to tell people what they are, can expect in their life if they give their life to Jesus. That's what we need to do. And we shy away from it because all we want to do is give them all the benefits, right? I mean, and there are tons of benefits, as we know, to come into, into a new life in Jesus. But there also comes with a cost. And that's what Jesus is doing. And maybe that's what we, a little bit of what we need to hear as we share Christ with people. We need, that needs to be part of our, of our sharing. Because we need to be careful not to tell people that everything will be great in life once they come to Jesus. That's the temptation. But we have to be careful. We can't do that. It's a personal conviction, a personal thought, if you will. But I think part of why some people fall away from Jesus along the way, some people stop running, if you will, is because they really weren't told up front what to expect. And when the storms of life that we sang about this morning come and assail, they go, what is this? This is not what I was promised in Jesus. We need to share that Jesus came because he loved humanity. As we sang about this morning, we need to tell them that God himself came and lived a perfect life. We need to tell them that that Jesus went to the cross for them, bearing their shame, bearing their guilt, absorbing the punishment that we should have for our sin on the cross, and dying. The wages of sin is death. Fulfilling that, dying for sin, and rising again on the third day, conquering sin, so that we can have eternal life. We have to tell them that gospel. But we also have to be responsible of telling them the cost in this life. The benefit is you have hope in this life in eternity to look forward to, but between the time that you say, yes, I'm following Jesus, and you die, there is difficulty, right? We have to tell them that. And I think that's what Jesus is modeling for us right here. We need to let people know that they can expe- what they can expect as a follower because that's what we see Jesus doing over and over again. He's telling here the scribe that in following him, he can expect sacrifice. And a very specific sacrifice for the scribe. And that sacrifice is expect to be humbled. Expect humiliation. Humiliation has a negative connotation in our, in our minds person can humiliate us in a vindictive manner, intending to hurt us, but that's not what humiliation actually means. The dictionary defines it as an abasement of pride, which creates mortification or leads to a state of being humbled. Leads to a state of being humbled. And for a Christian, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. The abasement of your pride. And so... That's what Jesus is saying to this scribe. Expect to be humbled. You want to follow me? Okay. You're in a very high 
prestigious position, expect to be humbled. Look with me at Jesus' response to the scribe in verse 20. And look look at it very carefully, because I think that that Jesus uses a couple words here that he means to use. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, the Son of Man, has no place to lay his head. Notice Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. Now this scribe would immediately know what Jesus is talking about. It kind of washes over most. But this scribe, knowing the scriptures inside and out, would know exactly what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to Daniel 7. We read it today in our public reading of scripture. He's calling himself the Son of Man. Daniel was given a vision of the future in Daniel 7 when Satan and his forces are finally defeated and one identified as the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days, another name for God the Father, and is given equal authority, equal glory, and equal power. In other words, this Son of Man is God himself. And from our side of the cross, we see this as a picture of Jesus. After all said and done here, going back to the Father and giving all power, authority, and dominion. Kind of a Ephesians 2, if you, I mean, a Philippians 2, if you will. A picture of the final state of things. A picture of God's forever reign here on earth. For the scribe, though, from his perspective, it's a picture of this Messiah that is to come. And so two things shock the scribe when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. First of all, he, the scribe realizes that Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah. I am, am God come in human form. And the second thing, and this is in respect to the, his, his following him, Jesus is implying something very interesting. If God himself, the Son of Man, has nowhere to lay his head, what can you expect? If God himself laid everything aside, what can you expect? If God himself, who has all glory, all power, all authority, is now humiliated, what can you expect? That's what he's saying to the scribe. That's what he's saying to us, too. Peter says the same thing to all his followers he's writing to in 1 Peter 4, where he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trials with which you are now suffering, though something strange is happening to you. Expect trials. Expect humiliations. And Jesus said that in John 15, didn't he? No servant is above his master. If I'm humiliated, you will be humiliated too. You will be humbled. You will be brought low. Your pride will be pressed in on. And that humiliation comes in various forms. It comes in, in forms of the way you should expect intellectual humiliation. You should expect intellectual humiliation as a Christian. I mean, 
an invisible God creating all this? It doesn't make any sense. And you call yourself an intelligent person? Of course it's evolution. You'll be humiliated. Or who would believe in a God who, who actually dwells within you? That, intellectually, that's silly. Or how about miracles? We're always looking for scientific explanations for things, right? Even when I was praying about, about Merrill's miraculous cancer healing, honestly, in this room, your, your mind, did it go to, well, you know, there are the medications and doctors. If we're intellectually honest, <laughs> that's where my mind went. But it's a miracle. Expect reputation humiliation. Not just intellectual, but your reputation. During the days of the Salvation Army, William Booth was bitterly attacked in the press. Not just by by secular media, but by the religious too. Booth replied to his son when his son brought him the newspapers. He said, Bramwell, that was his name, Fifty years hence, it will matter very little how these people treated us. It will matter a very great deal how we work for God. You have to expect reputation being ripped from you. You have to also expect your acceptance in society to erode. As you follow Jesus in more committed ways, brothers and sisters, you won't get the waves and the greetings that you are accustomed to. You might not get invited to those things that you once got invited to. You might be asked to leave certain boards or your tenure is not re-upped. You might not be accepted for your beliefs. I mean, just look at the way Amy Coney Bryant was, uh, Barrett was treated for her beliefs. But at those precise moments, you have to remember that no servant is above the master. You have to expect humiliation. That's part of how you weather this storm, brothers and sisters. That's part of how you, your faith is built through these things, is by being told to expect it, and Jesus is telling us to expect it. Expect disgrace. Expect rejection. William Hendrickson reminds us that Jesus was rejected in Judea in John 5. Galilee cast him out in John 6. Gadara begs him to leave. We're going to see that in two weeks. The whole region of Gadara begs him to leave. Samaria refuses to give him lodging in Luke 9. The earth rejects him in Matthew 27. And even heaven forsakes him in Matthew 27. We have to expect and allow that to happen in our life. We have to allow that to happen in our life. We're quick to protect our reputations, aren't we? We're quick to find justifications and vilify the other person. We fight for our acceptance. We protect our intellect, don't we? And maybe there are times for that. Don't get me wrong. Jesus wasn't a doormat, and neither should we be. 
There are times for that. But maybe there are also times to allow that in our life. To not protect ourselves. To not justify ourselves. Martin Luther said, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. See, that's what God is doing in all that. Expect humiliation and let it serve as a reminder that God has not abandoned us. He's actually making us more like Jesus at that point. Shortly after Booker T. Washington took over the presidency of Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, he was walking in an exclusive neighborhood and was stopped by a wealthy white woman. Not knowing Mr. Washington by sight, she asked if he would like to earn a few dollars and chop some wood for her. So Professor Washington smiled and rolled up his sleeves and proceeded to chop the wood and then take it in and stack it in her home. He never let her know who he was. Let me ask you a question. What would your inner monologue be like if you were Booker T? What would you be saying? Would you be saying things like, if she only knew who I was? Or would you be saying things like, Yep, this is who I am. That's what your inner monologue should be saying. Expect humiliation, brothers and sisters. The second expectation of any follower of Jesus is expect your life to be reprioritized. Expect reprioritization. This is Jesus' message to the next would-be follower in verses 21 and 22. So another disciple said to him, let me first go, follow, go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The verb there, to follow in the Greek, is in the imperative. Jesus is saying, follow now. Follow right now. Don't wait. I mean, you read this and... And at first glance, when you read this, doesn't that seem pretty callous and insensitive of Jesus? I mean, the Father... I mean, the Jews actually buried their, their dead in, within 24 hours. And so all this man is asking for is 24 hours. Doesn't that seem a little much, Jesus? Well, perhaps something else is going on here. I think that's what is going on. The term, bury one's father is actually a Jewish idiom. You know, we say things like, you spilled the beans. Those words don't mean that we actually spilled the beans, but that you told someone something you shouldn't have, right? To bury one's father is an idiom like that. The New Testament scholar R.T. France explains it this way, to bury one's father was a standard Jewish idiom for fulfilling one's family responsibilities for the remainder of the father's lifetime with no respect to imminent death. In other words, it is an indefinite postponement of discipleship, likely years rather than days. So this man is saying, I'll follow you, but just not right now. I'm all yours, 
but not at this phase of my life. I'm committed to you, but later. And that's the temptation for us, isn't it, brothers and sisters? When Jesus says now, we say, well, not now. Augustine is famous for having said in his youth, Lord, give me chastity and self-restraint, but just not yet. Don't we just say that to Jesus? Not yet. At various points of our life, we tend to say, I'll follow you, but not right now. Those of you in college and going to college, there'll be a temptation to say, I'll follow you, Jesus, but just not right now, not at this point in my life. That's what I did. I put Jesus on the back burner for a good chunk of my 20s. Just not right now, Lord. I'll follow you, but not right now. Some do this when they first get married. They say, we have to concentrate on our marriage. Not right now, Jesus. Some need say, I need to bury my father when we're building our careers. They don't have the time to give to Jesus and his beloved church. Some do this when our family is young. They say, I need to concentrate on my family. I'll follow you, but just not right now. Many say this as soon as they retire. You know, as soon as I retire, that's when I really start following. And then retirement comes and the distractions of retirement come. And before long, you're buried. In Berlin, there's an art gallery and there's a painting by a German painter called Adolf Menzel. But it's only partially finished. He intended to show Frederick the Great speaking with some of his generals. And and Mendel painted the background and he painted the generals and he sketched a charcoal sketch of Jesus and then he died. So hanging in the gallery is everything else in life is filled in except for Jesus. Many Christians come to the end of their life with, ever having painted the, with having painted the background of your life in great detail. But the main person is just sketched. And Jesus says to all of us who are putting Jesus off, let the dead bury their own dead. Prioritize me. Follow me now in this phase of your life. Now, brothers and sisters, I know the phases of life that you can give less than other phases of your life. We all get that. That's a given. Jesus gets that. He realizes that. But you have to know that Jesus also realizes and knows when you're saying... I'm going to bury my father. He knows when you're saying not in this phase of my life in a selfish way. Jesus knew what Blake Brown was doing when he was 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. 
And Jesus will always challenge our selfish priorities. He will always do that. He's doing that this morning. He will always insist on being first in your life. You will always hear from Jesus, let the dead bury their own dead. Over the triple doorways of a cathedral in Milan, there are three inscriptions. Over one is carved a beautiful wreath of roses, and underneath it is inscribed, All that, all that which pleases is but for a moment. Over the second arch as you enter is sculptured a cross with the words, All that which troubles is but for a moment. But underneath the great central entrance to the main aisle of the church is inscribed, But only that only is important, which is eternal. Let us remember that as we're tempted to say, Let me bury my father. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. It is precious to us. It is challenging for us. It presses in on our pride. It presses in on our priorities. It challenges us to follow you in a more strident fashion. Spirit, help us all to do that well in our lives. Help us not to get to the end of our life in you being a faint sketch, but being the center, beautifully painted. In Jesus' name, amen.